Uh, right, hi, welcome back to the Sydney Skinny. It's the film podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. It still says it's new in the notes, but we've done like 21 episodes, so I feel like that is... It's not new, it's no old, we're old. Yeah, this is the old... Old, tired, <laughs> definitely So tired. <laughs> Fun film podcast <laughs> from the team behind the Skinny magazine. Uh, it's a full house today for the first time in about six weeks. Everyone is here. Yay. So it's me, Peter, with Lewis, Hello. Jamie, Hello. and Anahi. Hi. Anahi today, due to a scheduling error, has uh, we are back in the office and Anahi has acquired a lapel microphone <laughs> and is absolutely <laughs> buzzing. I'm having the best time. <laughs> it's a very good time. I feel so professional. I'm really worried it's not recording, but it is recording. It is. It's recording. It's okay. Recording. We're doing fine. It's all good. But yeah, I feel like. One of those BBC journalists like has a little little microphone on their little lapel. I don't have a lapel. Out in the field. Out in the field. Having a great time. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we're back uh, in the office with another episode of the pod. Um, If you like the pod for whatever reason, because it's good mainly, but if you like if you like the pod or you just like us, um, please uh, subscribe to the pod, tell your pals about it, uh, share it on socials. We got actually quite a lot of nice feedback on the last episode, which I wasn't on. It was all big chunk of it was about the Filmhouse stuff and the IFF. So good job, everybody. Thank you. You did a very good job. I was away on holiday eating loads of fish. That sounds nice too. I was having a great time. Um, (laughs) Are you Newcastle? Yeah. Have you not heard about his fish restaurant? They're Newcastle. Okay, Okay, so it's in Tynemouth. Podcast, we've not got much time today, but I'm going well off track. (laughs) Um, It's in Tynemouth. It's called Riley's Fish Shack, and it's like a little shipping container on this little beach, and they cook uh, fish over like like open fires and coals. It's delicious. Like loads of really nice locally like sourced stuff, really interesting dishes, very good Bloody Mary. I was having a great time. In case you didn't know, Peter is also the food editor of the magazine. (laughs) And an enormous sued. A lovely chap. Um, So yeah, Riley's Fish Shack, if anyone wants a fish restaurant recommendation. Why is it so surprising that he'd have good... No, well, it sounds like he's been touring, like, the Med or something, you know? (laughs) Why tour the Med when you can go to Tynemouth? Anyway, back to the films. Uh, thanks to everyone who came out to the screenings we put on in the last couple of weeks, African Desperate at the Cameo and the CCA and the Brian M. Ferguson retrospective at the CCA. Jamie did the Q&A. It was good fun, wasn't it? It was good fun. fun. It was a raj in the audience, but otherwise. Uh, the, the audience were all a bit merry, I think. There were yeah. loads of people pitching in for the questions and the answers. <laughs> yeah, good, good fun time. Were you also pitched, Jamie? There was a rumour going around I was drunk. I had one or two beers, I think, over two hours. It was fine. To be fair, that would put me over the edge. You're made of stone. (laughs) (laughs) This is not Jamie's first rodeo, (laughs) as they say. Um, We are putting on some more screenings, but unfortunately they are currently both sold out. So we're doing some free previews with Mubi of After Sun, the very, very, very good film that we'll probably talk about possibly on the next episode of the podcast. We talked about it on the EIFF live show. It's very, very good. Um, we've got screenings at the GFT and Cameo on the 16th of November. Now, they're both currently sold out, but if you just check on socials and the skinny.co.uk slash tickets, we may be able to add some more tickets nearer the time. But even if you can't get in to see it with us, go and see it anyway, because it's very good. Paul Mescal is very, very nice man. He is a very nice man. Charlotte Wells, very nice person. 
Everyone's great. Everyone's just nice. Nice team. Good fun. A good bunch of lads. Um, so before we get into the main stuff from today, which to make up the time I spent talking about fish, I will just leave you to discover in the fullness <laughs> of the episode. Um, what's everyone been watching? Let's keep it snappy. Go first. Oh, loads of stuff. Oh no, <laughs> uh, BBC's Ghosts, What We Do in the Shadows, pretty much lots of spooky programming leading up to Halloween. I also started watching Twin Peaks for the very first time, really, because I tried that before and just found it weird and dull, but I think something has changed and I just now understand things better. I've grown <laughs> as a person and now I'm like really, in- <laughs> I'm so excited. Lewis has spent six months sitting in an office with us and being like <laughs> weird and strange. <laughs> now my default setting. Now I'm ready for David Lynch. <laughs> but yeah, Twin-, Twin Peaks is good. If you've not seen it, check it out. I actually yeah. haven't seen it. It's good. <laughs> check it out. <laughs> I will. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, what we do in the shout is that the film or the TV series? The TV series. Yeah. So I think there's like a fourth season airing in america that we don't have access to but it's all on bbc the first three seasons are on bbc iplayer yeah. it's a lot of fun so yeah. i'm planning on going as a we've got a late halloween party coming up and i'm planning on it as going as one of the characters so that'll be fun which one nadja natasia dimitri N- yeah natasia dimitri her character it's so good what we did in the shadows is great yeah, it's, it's it's great fun. <laughs> so that's a hearty recommend from us, Jamie. What have you been watching? Something else that I gather is also spooky and episodic. Yes, uh, I've been watching the new uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, show on Netflix, The Cabinet of Curiosities. Uh, you know, really good fun. It's an anthology film. Uh, sorry, anthology series with lots of really cool directors involved. Um, Jennifer Kent has got one in there. There's... Uh, Anna Lily Amapur, who did uh, The Girl Walked Home Alone at Night. Um, uh, the, my favourite so far is a film called The Viewing, uh, which is by Mandy director Panos Cosmatos, I think his name is. I actually didn't see Mandy, but I really want to see it now because this is insane. It's like psychedelic, cool. I wouldn't say it's scary, but it's actually just really funny. It's like a Tarantino film mixed with, say, you know, uh, a Jodorowsky movie. It's like, it's, it's off the wall. It's great. So. Is, uh, is the viewing the one that has uh, Eric Andre in it? Yes, he's in it. Massive afro. Yes, uh, he, he's in it and snorts a lot of cocaine. Excellent. Fun fair for all the family. Um, Anahe, what have you been watching? Um, I have mostly been watching Shameless, the US version of Shameless, uh, because of Jeremy Allen White who was in the bed. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I can't watch the bet again. So now I'm watching the whole of Shameless. It's really good, actually. I think... Um, I had watched parts of the UK one way back in the day. I liked it, but it was like, fine. Um, But I think I thought that it was just going to be quite bleak, but it's actually really, really funny. Um, Yeah, it's just a nice time. I don't really have anything else to say. (laughs) Well, fair enough. That's a solid recommendation. (laughs) It's got more Jeremy Allen White. Yeah. And it's a nice fun time. And it's a really nice fun time. And it's all on Netflix and you can just, like I've been mostly doing it in the background while doing other work. Um, The listings this month in the new... Uh, like issue of the skinny courtesy of Shameless um, but yeah it's been it's like very well acted very funny good time good stuff what about you Peter uh, I watched 2022 Scream which we just discussed in the office if you're going to follow the naming conventions should have been called Five Cream <laughs> they didn't have the guts for it and, and I'm not happy about it and I also said that I would put good money on there being more lines in this film that directly reference that it is this kind of film than there are that don't I know, it's a film about horror films, I get it. Jesus, lads, let's calm down with it. Um, but it's 
has a completely ridiculous pace to it. Ironically, for a film about a bunch of people getting stabbed, there's no time for anything to have any depth or sink in. <laughs> That's so gross. I'm just going to put a drum roll in and then cut to the next segment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome back to the Cine Skinny. We're just trying to get the window open without killing anyone eight floors down. Bros is is a romantic comedy starring Billy Eichner. So, Bobby is a podcast host and museum curator who doesn't want a serious relationship. He meets Aaron, who's played by Luke McFarlane, a lawyer who likes to play the field. This is a metaphor for also not wanting a serious relationship. But will they get together over the course of this film? I have not seen it, so I could not tell you. Couldn't you, though? Let's find out. <laughs> um, Lewis, you wrote about this for the website mm-hmm. and said that it made Love, Simon look like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> it's like, I, I did write that. Oh, I was like, ooh, is that too harsh? And then it, made, um, <laughs> it made my boyfriend laugh, so I kept it in. But, um, yeah, my biggest problems with this film, I think the reason that like it, it doesn't work and will just annoy people more than it pleases people it's all in the first 10 minutes where billy eichner's character is sitting in a meeting with a hollywood executive who asks him to pitch a gay romance film that everyone can enjoy even straight people and eichner becomes really indignant he's like against the watering down of queer experiences he says our stories are not your stories we love in different ways and like he's not gonna fit some script to your heteronormative standards and then proceeds to actually do that for the film in its writing for the remaining two hours like, it's, it has the same boring structure as every straight Hallmark movie imaginable. He, like, just has this extra catty voice throughout it. So he, like, comes after Queer Eye. He comes after Shit's Creek. Sort of like, oh, yeah, everyone loves Shit's Creek. Or, or am I the only one who's not crying at Queer Eye? And it's like, it's almost like I don't know who he's writing this for. Because it's, you know, a, a very kind of, like schmaltzy but ultimately like just nice and kind-hearted easy watching rom-com film about two people who fall in love especially if it's like you know got such a, a great inclusive cast would be the kind of stuff that audience the audience of Shit's Creek and the audience of Queer Eye would eat up but he's just making fun of it all throughout the entire time and seems to think that like this film is not that And even if there wasn't this, like, hypocrisy out the gate, even if it didn't have this, like, intense, smug tone throughout the whole thing, like, you know, it's just not that great. Like, I don't care about the characters. I don't really, like... I'm not, like, on the edge of my seat. Oh, will they get together, won't they? There's no time taken to, like, make it a film that you could see yourself in. It's such a specific, narrow viewpoint of what a, a queer romance is. To the point where... What, you know, is a, a good and inclusive cast, there's some great visibility in it. You see actors of all, like, you know, loads of trans actors, non-binary actors, um, bisexual actors, and they just become set dressing for what turns out to be a really, really mediocre, unoriginal romance plot. And punchlines as well. Like, he mm. punches down so much. Yeah. Like, so, so much. Like, it's, yeah, yeah it's I would say that, like, repeatedly drawing attention to the fact that he is a cis white gay man in a such a diverse community doesn't really like make it better that this is a cis gay man's story and ultimately just kind of you know not that deep uh, a, a perspective um so yeah didn't really like it at all and <laughs> <laughs> also predict that lots of other people will not like it 
So Lewis isn't a fan. Jamie, any advance on that? I didn't think I was going to come in here and defend Rose, but I, I, I agree with lots of it, actually. But I think, it Jamie, really really I think harsh. if any of us were going to make a comment or take a stance that was in direct opposition to everyone else in the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> Jamie being like, I hate to disagree with everyone as he continues his long career disagreeing yeah, with I everyone. I hate to disagree with everyone, but here I go again. <laughs> I, I broadly agree with Lewis that, yeah, it's not a very great movie, but I can kind of see what Bill Eitner was trying to do. He's, he's just trying to make a, a main... He is trying to make a mainstream movie. Like, he is trying to make just basically a Judd Apatow movie, but with, just happens to have two gay guys in it. And that's what he's done. Um, so I think if he did that on those terms, I think nobody would actually care. But there is a kind of self-righteousness to the film. Not only just the way he's promoting it, he's saying, basically, if you don't see this film, you're homophobic. <laughs> Which is not, I think, a really good <laughs> way to entice people in. Um, but... Just the, the actual film itself is a little bit smug in its presentation, and it's you know Lewis is completely right. It's not doing anything different. It hits all the beats you expect it to hit. Yeah, and it's it's completely unoriginal. I, I did think it was quite funny though. I did laugh a few times. Uh, you know, it has it does it just introduce like poppers and orgies and things you wouldn't normally see in a Judd Apatow movie. So it's 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 kind of pushing some barriers, but it's also it is sort of quite bland as well. Um, to me, I think the problem is maybe Billy Eichner. I don't think... I think maybe he should have cast someone else in this film. Maybe. I think as a writer um, and, and as a kind of eccentric personality on TV is great. I found him a really unappealing central character. Uh, I just found him kind of annoying. Um, I thought that the other actor was far better, um, who's this kind of just like beefcake, but I actually thought he had a bit of charm about him. But, but he's so underdeveloped, you know, it's, it really is a, a kind of showcase for Billy Eichner, this film. Um, and, and as Lou says, there's lots of like really interesting characters on the margins. And I just sometimes wish, could we just spend a bit more time with these characters? There's like some great scenes where Billy Eichner, his character uh, in the film, he, he's in charge or a kind of curator and, and the kind of head of like a board who are. Um, putting together this kind of LGBTQ museum in New York, and I loved all those scenes because, like, I thought all those scenes were very funny because you have, you know, the lesbians are complaining there's not enough lesbian uh, sort of stuff in the museum. There's a bi guy who's angry that nobody's, you know, everybody's a reason bi people. Um, there's like queer characters uh, uh, and sort of trans characters who are not happy. So like, there's some like, great bickering. But I just wish, oh, maybe if there was like five minutes developing one of these characters and following them and giving them a bit more space, apart from Bill Eichner, um, who sort of takes up so much room in this film. And fair enough, the guy wrote it, he's, he's, he's the driving force, but sort of sometimes you do have to step aside and sort of bring in other characters and make it a bit more less about you. But in saying all that, I did laugh quite a few times. I did actually laugh as well, actually quite a few times. Um, I think there are parts of the writing that are really funny. Um, but the overall structure of the film isn't, and I think that's the problem. I think my main issue with it is that it is just a very, very bitter film, which makes me both like kind of sad and also quite angry. <laughs> like, I don't think you can make a film, like, sorry, all the other gays are like cooler than you, babe. Like, I don't know what you want to do about that, you know? Like, it's just, I know, he's clearly, it feels like a vehicle in a lot of ways for a lot of his sexual insecurities around things. And I think there is obviously like a kind of real politics to that, like a politics of insecurity and kind of who is desirable. But I think if I 
were worried that hot people don't want to fuck me, I wouldn't make a whole film about it. <laughs> but then he, like, but then he writes it so that the, the hot guy has to tell him constantly how great yes. he is. It's oh, so it's weird. It's so cringe. Yeah, there are literally whole scenes where the guy is like being like, oh my God, like, if you don't think that like you're worth love, then and I just wouldn't write a scene where it's like hot person will say that I am irresistible. <laughs> like I would have some fucking shame. Do you know what I mean? You know, Billy Eichner is quite ripped. He's obviously not as conventionally attractive as his co-star, but he's like pretty jacked and and in good shape. And it's just the only whilst again. You're talking about like the things you don't usually see in Judd Apatow films, like orgies and poppers and stuff like that. I actually, that was something that I liked about the film is that like it's quite explicit with gay sex in a way that probably will like cut that straight expectation out of it. But all the bodies that we see are like super jacked white dudes. Like yeah. from 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 a, a, like as a as a film about sex, it's way way more narrow than its like purported cast. And then he's really bitter and bitchy about them, like oh they're all stupid, like. Mm. They just don't want to fuck you. Like, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I think I part of it is his age as well. Like, there's a big sort of section. I don't know if I should spoil who the cameo is, but there's a cameo from a star from the 90s who was, I guess, a, a, a gay icon in the 90s. And I'm sure younger people don't have a clue who this person is. Uh, and it's like, that's like a big chunk of the film. And it's like, who are you speaking to? It's like sort of yeah. ge geriatric millennials, you know, might get this. But like, sort of younger people just think this is so, like, you know, we're rolling their eyes. And I think that's like fundamentally the problem with this film, right? Is that like, it doesn't really know its audience. And I think it's really ironic that he keeps bitching about Shit's Creek, which like, if you come for Dan Levy, like you come for me, <laughs> like, <laughs> shut the fuck up. Um, but he keeps bitching about Shit's Creek and being like, oh, it basically was catering to a straight audience. But apart from the stuff which I agree, that kind of like depiction of gay sex, but at the same time, like you say, it is quite sanitized and in terms of only certain types of bodies, the actual structure of how the romance plays out is so hallmark and it's so straight that I just, it feels like it's made for a straight audience. And so it's like, but you're doing the same thing. Okay, there are digs at Hallmark movies. Like, like, oh, how ridiculous it is that there's now these Hallmark movies that have like gay couples when it's still massively pandering to a straight audience. The co-star, I think his name is Luke McFarlane, is yeah. from like 10 different Hallmark movies. Like those like Christmas, Netflixy films. It's just like, yeah. it feels like, the, the film sort of smacks of insecurity. Like everything about it is part of what it's making fun of. Like there's one scene that I would say actually like, I had some emotional investment in, and it's when um, Luke McFarlane's character is left alone in the LGBT History Museum by himself, and the audience is treated to this huge montage of photographs and paintings of distinct queer people all throughout history. I think that they say it's like something up to like four thousand years of like historical queer people. You're just bombarded with these faces that are like too quick to discern, but there's such a great volume, and it's like lots of casual cinema goers won't really have like thought about the scope of queerness throughout human history and it's like it kind of got me of like oh like that makes a queer viewer feel like they're part of something except the only reason that the montage exists is so that we can cut back to Luke McFarlane looking at his reflection in the display case and feeling like he hasn't done anything with his life and I'm like I don't care about him like I don't care about this like rich ripped New York lawyer who wants to be a rich ripped New York chocolatier like it's just Maybe. the most pithy <laughs> conflict it's the most like safe and twee thing you could possibly do that's probably as good a point as any <laughs> uh, bros is in cinemas now if you want to watch it it's your call <laughs> <laughs> 
Right, next up, Wendell and Wilde, which is the new film from Henry Selick, the stop-motion animation legend, Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline, etc. Um, on this one, he's working with Jordan Peele, who co-wrote the script. That's Jordan Peele off of Us, Nope, Get Out, and Key and Peele, the very, very good sketch comedy show. So, Kat, who's voiced by Lyric Ross, is a orphan teenager returning to her hometown to go to an all-girls school where she discovers that she has some what I'll describe as underworld-related powers. That brings her into contact with Wendell and Wilde, who are played by Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key. It's all the way around, though, so Key is Wendell and Peele is Wilde. But you'll, you'll work it out. Um, and there are a pair of kind of low-level demons who have a dream of creating a new underworld fairground. Cat's school has some supernatural stuff going on that soon kind of comes to the fore, and there's also a pair of evil developers eyeing up the town to create a new private prison. Truly, much is occurring in the little town of Rustbank. Um, Anahi, what did you think of this one? Oh, I did not know we were going to come to me first. Okay. <laughs> I have very few thoughts. Um, my main thought, like, it's really visually beautiful. Um, like, I love Henry Selleck. I think a lot of the stuff that, like, marks out Caroline and Nightmare Before Christmas, if you really like the visual sensibility of those, it's the same thing. I think the overwhelming critique of this film is that it does too much. Um, and I certainly, yeah, I kind of felt quite like lost watching it and not always like sure of what was going on. Um, but it is like quite ambitious storytelling. It's obviously kind of aimed, I don't know if it's necessarily aimed for children, children, but like, you know, for a kind of like young, a youngish audience could definitely watch it. And it's kind of dealing with ideas of like prison abolition with um, like really kind of quite intense grief and guilt and like it's really quite like meaty stuff. Um, and even though it doesn't really have room to really do them all justice, I really do admire how it's kind of going into all of those. The main thing that I took away from this is this is a really important lesson as to why films should be shown in cinemas. This is such a visually beautiful film. And I remember seeing Caroline when it first came out because that was at the heyday of like the kind of renewal of like 3D films. And so I really, really remember everyone was like going to cinema and they see it in 3D and it was like such a kind of occasion. And I'm not saying this should be, I really fucking hate 3D. So I'm not saying this should be released in 3D, but I think seeing it in a cinema both in terms of the visuals and then also the plot would actually maybe have helped because definitely when it was on my small TV and I was like eating dinner and like doing other bits and pieces, like I just completely, there were whole parts where I was like, oh wait, what happened? And it's because I'm not focusing because you focus at the cinema. So that was like the main thing I took away from it was this is such a shame that it's just being like dropped on Netflix with very little fanfare. And it makes me sad because this isn't like a tiny name. Like this is fucking Henry Selleck. Like he's a big deal. So if he's being dropped on Netflix, everyone's going to be dropped on Netflix. So that was kind of sad. Yeah, I think the thing about it, be, I think it's extremely ambitious, possibly a little bit too ambitious. Um, it is a very kind of overstuffed plot and it would have been nice to have more time to like relax into the world a bit or kind of, it does have a lot of thematic stuff going on and a lot there's a lot of characters in it. It's like a large number of like named characters with some backstory and it would be would have been nice to have a bit more time to kind of deal with some like spend more time with some of those characters. My single favourite sequence in the whole film is of Key and Peel's characters just dressing up a bunch of skeletons in a graveyard. Yeah. Um, which tells you a lot about the characters and builds the world but does absolutely nothing to advance the plot. And there's kind of a lesson in there about like 
it doesn't always have to be like motoring forward at 100 miles an hour unless there's too much in it to begin with. But I think it looks great. The character design is great. Really nice. The thing you always get with stop motion, which is really nice attention to detail and really nice kind of physicality of like characters and things like that. There are a couple of stinker vocal performances, but they're mostly pretty good. And Key and Peel are just like, it's just great fun to see those two like back together. Again. Which are the bad ones? I'm curious. Now. It was the the daughter of the two baddies. Oh, the one with the, the very like cut glass yeah. English accent. Yeah, it sounded a little bit like each of their uh, each word of their lines was being delivered on a separate beat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that it's I think the fact it tackles so many different issues and themes is to be commended, and it does it in quite a bold way. I just found Lewis that it had a little bit too much. It almost had too much in it for its own good, but I know that you liked it and will probably disagree with it. Yeah, I really liked it. I, I, I think also it's, liked it, you know, I know that you disagreed with that earlier when I told you in the office. The, yeah, <laughs> to just tread over the conversation that we had in the office. Like, I think that it's got so much going for it. And, like, part of that, I think the plot strains a little bit because of that, but in terms of, like, a broader experience, it's, like, got a very punk rock narrative. It's got queer representation. It's goth. It's horror. It's got comedy, tragedy. It's got these like great politics. It's got a battle between good and evil, and on top of that, it like still makes a very sweet, fun family film. Um, there's like so many supposedly villainous characters, like demonic tyrant leather daddies and sleazy opportunists, but you're sort of rooting for them all because the designs are great, and also they're just like so into their roles. You're like you really just want to see things roll out the way they want to because of how wild it'll get. Um, there are like, I mean, like even when the, the sort of old guard council members are resurrected as oppressive skeletons, like I get that that's a metaphor for like the undying influence of, of, of white colonial patriarchy on modern civics, but the skeleton dudes are just like tearing the place up and having such a good time. Like, oh my God, I want to party with these guys. Yeah. The fact that they're like, this guy is like obviously evil and he's just overrun whatever the living people want, but look at his cool mustache and hat. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing where it's like every scene, no matter what side you're on, the characters are just like, tearing through the the set and just like making such a big explosion out of the film and i think like it was best viewing it through that lens that you were talking about and heat where it's like not like a kids kids film but there's definitely like it's a family friendly film and there will be some like cool twisted kids who want to get into this world like nightmare before christmas you know um it's sort of henry selick doing that again here and you know, it's beautifully done, and I think that more so than, like, a really, really unique visual style like Nightmare Before Christmas, I think it's kind of a goodwill is what will get, like, the young audience on board. It's, like, so pure as a narrative and also just really, really well made. So, yeah, I was overall very pleased with it. I was quite sucked in as well. I wasn't doing anything else in the background, so I was kind of able to pay attention. But, like, it is kind of odd how you know, our only villain villain, these industrialists, this, like, Donald Trump stand-in, like, show up for, like, three scenes. Like, they really do not have a lot of time. So, you know, there's little things like that that suggest maybe this is a lot that the film's carrying. But, I don't know. There's not a scene that bored me, is the thing. It's hard to say that, like, you know, as a film, the plot is struggling, but there's not a single scene that I was bored watching. There was a really good review on Letterboxd 
It was like, yeah, the corporate big bads in this movie are just Liz Truss and Black Boris Johnson. Which <laughs> 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 so I just thought was quite funny. He well. has the voice and the hair. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Great yeah. times. <laughs> and I think like Anahit was saying, I think if nothing else, the fact that this has been dropped on Netflix, I would say go and watch it because if people if these kind of films are gonna end up on Netflix, people should at least take the time mm. to watch them because the amount of effort that goes into making a stop motion animation yeah, for it to just be fun. like dumped uh, at a Halloween adjacent moment in the Netflix release schedule feels like a bit of a kick in the teeth. It's and you wouldn't kick Henry Selick in the teeth. Come on now. It, it's definitely not the last time I'm going to see it. I'm probably going to see it some other Halloween, I think. Put it on for someone if I have a Halloween party in the future or something yeah. like that. Oh, that would be like great vibes. Like if it was just playing on a yeah. big screen, like a projector at a Halloween party. Oh my God. <laughs> Your new Halloween tradition. Yeah. <laughs> so Wendell and Wilde is on Netflix now and will presumably still be there next Halloween. Um, yeah, it's on Netflix. Go and check it out. And next, sorry. And next, what am I talking about? <laughs> no Bears, a new film from Iranian director Jafar Panahi, which tells two kind of intertwined stories of love in the face of like superstition, bureaucracy, and oppression. Now, Jafar Panahi is directing a new film about a couple attempting to flee for a life in Europe, but he is directing the film remotely from a village near the Iranian border where he becomes embroiled in the kind of tale of a young couple who are trying to be together in the face of opposition from the kind of village elders, the men in the village, basically. Um, and so often, as with Five Cream earlier, films make kind of like meta allusions or have this kind of conceit that they're like meta and it's a film about being a film and it's just for the sake of it or because they've run out of ideas. Films often make like the point, the act of pointing out that you're making a film in a film feel like a cheap, easy gag. Um, and this film, which was is being made, as we will discuss shortly, by a man working under the continued and active threat of imprisonment, the film points out that it's a film in order to show the lengths that people will go to to live their lives and tell their stories in the face of opposition from almost every angle. It's a really amazing example of like docufiction and metafiction, and it's two kind of concurrent strands complement each other really well it's like incredibly like brave and daring i just want to shout out all the kind of crew behind the scenes people because it's mm -hmm. one thing to be making a film when you are a known figure and you're in the film and everyone knows that you are on you know you're being watched but if you're a camera person or like a grip or something like that on a film being made by a director who has been told stop making films or you go to prison yeah. you are also in trouble, but mm -hmm. you aren't even the one who people would recognise if they saw you walking down the street. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's incredibly brave, really ambitious, really well made, and also has some like surprisingly kind of Kafka-esque farce bits of comedy. <laughs> uh, there's a scene where uh, Panahi is leading a kind of baying mob of people who want to shout at him through his house, but he leads them through the house so they all have to angrily take their shoes off, shuffle through, <laughs> and then put them back on at the other end. Because they're Iranian. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he could have gone round, but he's like, no, nah, come through this way to like slow them down and just take the piss. And then there's also a scene where there's a kind of fight going on outside his window. He looks out and his like de facto landlord is just ineptly waving a spade around to try and break it up. Um, but yeah, just a really, really, really good example. If you like kind of metafiction, docufiction and films within films and things of this nature, see, seek it out if you can find it. It's a brilliant film. Jamie, please tell me you agree. 
Oh don't, yeah. Don't do. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it, Jamie. <laughs> no, no, I totally agree. Um, I mean, I would say I think the side happening on the Iranian side of the border is more interesting with Panahi, where he's like, uh, you know, is this kind of farce? But it also becomes kind of quite tragic. I think that's a more interesting story than what's happening on the other side of the border, where art is imitating life because they're playing characters who want to flee the country, but actually are in the middle of trying to flee the country. They're also dissidents who are present in prison and stuff. Panahi. The incredible courage of this guy who's been making films since 2010. He's made five films since 2010, despite being, you know, uh, banned from making films. It's incredible. But he's such a lovely screen presence, you know? Like, I, I find it's just so ironic this kind of avuncular, lovely guy is being hounded by people. And even, and that's that's the kind of, because that's kind of basically what happens. The, the film kind of parallels his existence, you know? So he is moved to this uh, village. He's just trying to live his life, he's just trying to make a film across the border, but everybody thinks he's up to something. The, the village elders think he's a spy or he's he's, a, he's he's doing something with the smugglers or he's about to like flee the country. Um, and then they accuse him of taking pictures that he's not meant to have taken of this uh, young woman who's with her lover. Um, and that goes against this marriage that's going to happen. And it's, it's, it's just, the paranoia is rife, you know. Um, and Pai's such an interesting figure at the start because he's just confused by it all. He doesn't understand... He says, I've not done anything, take my cards, take my camera. Um, but yet they continue to hound him while he's trying to do this work, while he's trying to make this film. And it's, it's just, people are constantly on his back. You know, this this lovely guy who is so sweet, who is so polite, who's just like, uh, who's just trying to live his life. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's what I just found so charming about it. Him as a presence is so lovely. Uh, his bemusement at this village with their strange customs which he tries to join in with there's a, a great scene where he uh it's the kind of is that truth telling scene i can't remember how they actually phrase it where he has to go towards the village elders and sit in a room with all these men and admit that he didn't take this photo but panahi being panahi wants to do something a bit different he wants to film it and then they'll get angry with him they'll think he's uppity being this kind of like uh, arrogant person from the city but he's not at all and it's it's, it's so infuriating to watch and um, it's just so impressive how Panahi never just raises his voice and never he, he just sort of lets it wash over him so he's, he's just such a inspiring figure um, but yeah it's very funny obviously very meta very witty and just yeah just utterly brave just like yeah I love the guy I, I don't know if we've said this before, but we get like um, like in browser screeners for the films we review, and sometimes they're not the like I don't know the streaming platforms aren't great. So I was actually having technical difficulties the first time I was watching this. Early on in the film, um, Panahi loses internet connection to the scene he's remotely directing, and that exact second my stream started to buffer. I can't help but feel like that's the most authentic way to watch this film because it's like <laughs> you're like, so... oh, this is really meta. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this is smart. <laughs> he's going so deep into it, but it is. It's so rough and ready and it's so entwined in his identity as a filmmaker on the run to the point where you're like, you know, he could never have made anything but this film and yet somehow it still, like, speaks to, like, such a, you know, I think it's such a universal appealing narrative of, like, that, that, the, the the human state of creating art in a place where people don't understand why you're creating art or trying to, like, get in your way. And that's something that comes up a lot throughout his films, but... This one in particular, like, yeah, it has, like, a real living setting. The The community that he's amongst really, like, feels like its own character almost, that he's, like, having to have this dialogue with throughout the entire thing. But it is very meta, very cool, and, and just very, very good. It is really good. It is so, so good. Um, yeah, it just has, like, so many layers. There's just so much to say about it. Um, 
I think it is like a very, I think it really points to why even if he could, I'm not sure that he would have left the country because he is just such an Iranian filmmaker. Like everything that he's making is a reflection of Iranian society, a reflection of Iranian culture. Um, a lot of the like comedy comes from, yeah, things like the taking off of shoes and the fact that like you can't actually ever be like rude to someone really in Iranian culture. And so you're just having to work around <laughs> all of these ridiculous ways. To Everyone is someone. constantly <laughs> walking up to people's doors and saying, is it all right if I can come in? Yeah. <laughs> Even when they're like coming in to batter you, they're like, do you mind telling yeah. me if I pop in for it's a cup of tea? It's so, so funny. And like, I think you see that in all of his films. Um, yeah, like that is just really, really good. I think this is a really interesting film about borders as well. Like he's obviously in this kind of like village that just over the border is where his film is happening. And this is like the closest that he can be to it. And that's because he is banned from leaving the country. And so then that also becomes, this, there's this really like heartbreaking bit where his assistant director drives him to the border. And it's like, if you basically take a step over, you've like left the country and he's just like standing there and that kind of sense of what does it mean to like belong somewhere and be able to like move through states I think that's clearly something that's like he's mulling over <laughs> for very obvious reasons and I agree with you that I think what's actually happening in the village is more compelling but then that does make the film within a film also really interesting because then it is about yeah what does it mean to be Iranian if you're like been stuck in Turkey in limbo and you can't get a passport and you have to get a fake passport and like you can't go with your family and so then you're just and I think it then has like a lot in common with his son's recent film that was also about like that kind of getting over the border I just think it's like so interesting I think he's so great you're right he's so funny he's so sweet I just really I don't know I just really want the best for him and obviously that is not <laughs> what's happening right now um but yeah he is just his run of films since he was arrested are like miracles. Like I just can't think of anyone else that has done anything like that in modern cinema ever. December 2010, he was given a 20 year filmmaking ban by the regime in Iran. He has since made five feature films and three shorts, legend. It's like big dick energy. Yeah. Like do you know what I mean? Like fucking hell. I believe we call that in the business king shit. <laughs> um, and then amid the kind of latest round of protests in Iran. He was arrested after going to check on two fellow filmmakers who had also been taken into custody. His filmmaking ban came with a six-year prison sentence, which the regime in Iran is now looking to enforce. So they are enforcing it. Yeah. So like, yeah, it was he was given a six-year prison sentence back in 2010, but then it was mostly, he was placed under house arrest and it never actually, I can't remember if he did go to prison for a while, but it basically never happened. And then when he was arrested for protesting, there's just been like, I think obviously right now things are, um, but just generally in the last year, there's been an enormous like crackdown from the government, um, government like the state in Iran. Um, and so yeah, that now he has been sent to prison and has been there since the summer, um, which is also, yeah, that's a whole thing. Cause like, so the prison that he's in at the moment is Evin, which is like the prison that Iran holds all of its like political prisoners in. And there was very famously like a very big fire there a couple of weeks ago um, as part of like everything that's going on at the moment. So it's like really bad, like really shitty, shitty situation. Anyway, sorry, that's that was some right. background. That's, right. that's good background. <laughs> um, so, but he had made 
he had been a noted, he was one of the most noted Iranian directors even before all this stuff happened. So Jamie, I believe when we talked about this beforehand, he said you would talk a little bit about his kind of earlier work. Yeah, no, Pre-ban. Definitely. It's weird to talk about someone's pre-state ban filmmaking career because they have an extensive post-state ban <laughs> filmmaking career. Yeah. Once again, legend. But, Jamie, on you go. Yeah, I mean, like, he was a protégé of Abbas Kiristami, worked on uh, Kiristami films, and Kiristami co-wrote his first film with him, uh, The White Balloon, uh, which I think might still be my favourite of his films, actually. Um, so, yeah, he... That was a kind of massive hit, like across all the festivals. Um, but his films got increasingly in that film, uh, as a lot of Iranian films do, uh, is a kind of metaphor for Iranian sort of government. It's about a young girl who's like just wandering the city, um, trying to get a goldfish for a New Year, um, and she loses her money, and 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 she uh, bumps into like a variety of people. Um, so it's very gently critical of. Iranian culture, but also kind of, you know, it's also just a, a portrait of Tehran. Um, but his his other films got a bit more critical, and that's why the government sort of have sort of moved in on him, basically. Um, but yeah, he, his films are hugely popular, really direct, really funny. Um, you know, a film like Offside, for example, um, which is, I think, his last kind of sort of fiction film before the ban. Um, it's, it's just a, like a it's, it was based on his daughter's experience. His daughter is a football mad she wanted to go to a game she couldn't because in iran women aren't allowed in the football stadium so he just made a film about some girls who dress as boys to sneak in and he kind of filmed it on the fly while uh you know part of it is at a real kind of world cup qualifier game and it's just like ballsy filmmaking but it's just so direct and accessible and funny you know it's basically as funny as like any um you know american teen comedy the, the young girls are just like any young girl you'd see in American cinema. They're so bitchy. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> great. Um, yeah, so funny. But also, and also he doesn't sort of, it's a, it's a really humane filmmaker because the, the, the soldiers who have to enforce the rules also are not evil. You know, they're, they're just like, it's like, like you said, it's the Kafka-esque ridiculousness of all. They are sort of like, they're forced to enforce these ridiculous rules. And yeah, so it's just utter charming as, as films uh, manage to be sort of, they're a bit like him, really. They're, they're sort of diffident and they're they're sort of speaking up against the regime, but they're also sort of super charming and affable, and like that's why they they went across the world and sort of yeah, um, from that kind of second wave of Iranian filmmakers, he is probably seen along with Kirustami as you know kind of one of the figureheads, um, and he has said the reason he makes films and why he has to make make his politics so forceful in his films is he he, he feels like. He's doing it for the younger generation. You know, his, his son has become a filmmaker. But he has always said that the reason he does this and he sticks his neck out and puts his head above the parapet is because if he doesn't do it, they would, it'd be harder for them to make films. So, so it, it's, it's a really kind of altruistic act. But he's also making great cinema um, in the middle of it. And then, you know, um, as we're going to talk about, the run of films he's made since this ban is just such a great fuck you. But also just really great cinema as well. Yeah, his son's film that we've mentioned a couple of times is Hit the Road, which we had on the pod earlier in the year and loved. So go back and listen to that episode if you want to know more of what we're actually talking about. <laughs> so I suppose he, so he gets banned from filmmaking under pain of house arrest and various other things in 2010. By 2011, he's made his first post-ban film <laughs> called This Is Not a Film, which he smuggled out of Iran on a flash drive baked into a cake. <laughs> 
Anahu, legend. Legend, <laughs> icon. God, I love him so much. Yeah, so This Is Not A Film is filmed entirely in his apartment when he's under house arrest. Um, and people like come in and out. There's like an assistant director who comes in that's like half filmed on an iPhone, half on this guy's camera. And he's just like in his house. He can't really leave. He's still very like affable. I would be like, my personality would have gone down the fucking drain. Do you know what I mean? But he's still so like charming and funny and nice, but clearly like also angry and upset. And it's like getting to him. He, at one point, like you hear his son's voice come over the phone. He's like calling like his wife. He's like having conversations with people. And he's, it's a documentation of him trying to make a film and it's not a film. And I just think, yeah, the kind of meta layers of that are so clever of like, what does it mean to make art? What counts as art? I think especially in a country where every single film has to go through like the censorship board for it to count as a film and for it to be able to be like legitimized and like distributed and all of that, then kind of what does it mean to be making what counts as a film, what counts as national cinema? I think like all those questions are really interesting. A lot of it, he's just like taping off the floor to kind of like block scenes that he can't actually film and just like working it out again and again. He has this huge fucking lizard that he just chills with. <laughs> Legends. It's just like, oh my God. Yeah, it's just really, really clever. Um, and I think pretty much everything, there's a couple of his films that he made since then that I think are like co-directed with others or like anthology pieces that I haven't seen. But I think almost all of the ones that are just like that he has directed himself, pretty much all feature him. And so they're all then about this filmmaking process. And there was this really interesting moment that I've been thinking about a lot in, because I saw No Bears in Venice, which is where it premiered. And I went to the press conference that obviously did not, he was not there, but they had like left an empty seat for him. And then a journalist kind of asked the panel, which was um, like, yeah, like various actors and other people in the film, like, why is it that out of all of the filmmakers in Iran, he's like getting the most kind of trouble all the time? Why do they keep coming for him? And this guy, Sereza Heydari, who plays like the assistant director, No Bears, like very bluntly was like, well, I think the answer is in the film, which like, if he had said that to me, I would have been fucking mortified. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is actually a really interesting answer because I think it actually points to the fact that what makes Panahi's films so powerful, like since the filmmaking ban, is that they're not just films, they're films about the power of films and their films about the power of images and what happens when you like capture life and you interpret life. And I think a lot of like what happens in No Bears is also about that because it's all about like a photograph that can make and break people's lives and everyone's like fighting over it. And I just think that's like both, yeah, like really, <laughs> again, really ballsy, really courageous thing to say that, yeah, that it is the actual act of making films that can be so dissident and that it's not something that can be taken away. Um, and there's also um, a kind of, there's a defiance built into the fact that you are being, you personally have been banned from making films. So your response is to make a film starring yourself yeah. about the fact that you are banned from making films. Yeah. And then make another one. Yeah, and then another one. <laughs> I think like, so I have not seen a lot of Panahi's films. I've seen No Bears and his other most recent one, Three Faces. Um, so I'm kind of coming in the opposite direction as you, Jamie. Like, I'm going back, and I'm really interested to go back because they, these films have come at a point where he 
really is like that master of the meta like he has been making this type of film for so long and he's gotten really really good at it but it is this sort of like they, they do have these similarities and that they're deep dives into small communities and how you know it is integral to their culture on a smaller scale as these small communities with their own traditions but on a wider scale as the culture of iran that you know they're just having tea with them and they're being so friendly and so so accommodating but there's like also a lethal edge to the way they live their lives and his filmmaking always is kind of the herald of that like by having himself front and center of these narratives then it, it speaks so much to his own feelings about what filmmaking has done not just to the world around him but to himself mm -hmm. so i'm so interested to go back and see that kind of thesis of his begin to take shape over his career Taxi Tehran is like a really good one that does That's that the as one well. That yeah, <laughs> it's really one of my favourite of his new ones as well. There's also a great character in it who's like basically a pirate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, 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 but, but the reason he, he like he's there is because he can't see all these Western movies, so he's given. So he basically tries to like get. Uh, Panahi to be his partner uh, because he thinks <laughs> if Panahi's there he'll, he'll sell more uh, DVDs it's really funny but yeah like uh, yeah it's a great film and it's so much and it comes up in No Bears a little bit the idea that like by making himself a public maintaining his public image is kind of it's an act of defiance but also an act of like self-preservation there's a scene where they talk about the smugglers who run the smuggling route over the like, Iranian border. He's like, oh, they're big fans of your film. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I spoke to the smuggler. He said he was a big fan of yours, so it should be all right. <laughs> Once again, Jafar Panahi, legend. Legend. Skinny Seal of Approval. <laughs> okay, and I think that's us. Uh, Jamie is off to a meeting about the film house. Um, is there somewhere that people can find out information about what has happened at that meeting? Uh... I don't know. Okay. Uh, I think the I think the meet is a public meeting, so the meet the minutes will be shared sure. somewhere. Uh, I'm I will. Sure will if they are out by the time this episode comes out, I'll put them in the show notes. If not, I'll put them in the page on the Skinny website that has all of our archived episodes on it. If you like this episode, then uh, like it, tell your friends, leave it a good review, tell, share, enjoy, like, subscribe. Solid. Um, <laughs> Jamie, has <to> go. <laughs> Jamie has to go. Right. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Anahit. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. We will be back in two weeks, uh, hopefully somewhere where the tech is less chaotic. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.